Welcome to the In Pursuit Podcast. Here we aim to inspire, inform, and entertain. We explore the human side of the workplace life cycle, from education and career choice to employee engagement and organizational culture. From onboarding and retention to succession planning and separation, we dissect the latest trends and interview the top leaders changing the game through their impact, leadership, strategy, and operations. Whether you hail from the field of education, nonprofit, or business, you're sure to find nuggets of knowledge within these episodes. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the In Pursuit podcast. Today, we are thrilled to have with us Jeremy Blaine. He is the founder and CEO of Performance Works International, a company that helps organizations, executive boards, leaders, and teams succeed in the digital climate amidst amidst disruption, opportunity, and uncertainty. Jeremy combines business transformation expertise, leadership knowledge, and commercial success as an international CEO and executive board officer in the UK and Asia. With his experience as a corporate and human capital professional for over 30 years, he has operated on an international basis to launch successful businesses and turn underperformance into excellence. This included a seven-year period as a CEO for an international consultancy company based in Singapore, operating from India to the Pacific. Jeremy is proven at all stages of the business life cycle, from startup to internationalism, raising profiles and profits throughout. We are thrilled to have you. Thanks so much for being here. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Start us off by telling us more about yourself that we didn't just hear in your bio. Uh, Well, a couple of things that you may not have may not have known about me. The first is that I'm from Manchester in the UK, which is the north of England. And the for those of you that know the red half of Manchester, which is Manchester United is my team, which is soccer. Uh, (laughs) better not say football on this podcast Uh, especially after the Super Bowl Um, so the football however it's in the blood so so a relation of mine used to play for Manchester United and was in a very famous team called the Busby Babes and the Busby Babes were the team that had the horrific air crash in Munich in 1958 and uh, my relative survived that and became one of the record goal scorers uh, so it, that has gone with me through my life through through my supporting of the team itself and um, I remain a fan to this day that's amazing I have a really uh, funny story about why I'm a, a Man U fan which has to do with <laughs> I was in Russia um, watching a, a world skydiving competition with um, a person I was dating at the time who was a professional skydiver and we were riding the tube at like 11 o'clock at night and they have actual beautiful um interior stations there and this group of um i would say 20 something maybe maybe college students came onto the train and they were all wearing manual gear and they just assumed that we were from england um our group was quite mixed and there was some from the uk but there was also clearly some americans and they just assumed we were all and they were all trying to get us to to be fans with them and spent kind of a number of hours with us uh, after that, you know, telling us all about the game and why weren't we there watching it and, you know, all the things. And so it just their passion in a country as far away as Russia was so um, inspiring to me that I just sort of have always adopted them. Oh, I, you're not alone. Most <laughs> of Manchester United supporters don't live in the UK. Right. I can tell you that right now. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, tell us more about your work and your passions. Well, I've had a rather traditional career in many ways. I started in retail. I started selling. I started selling and not very glamorous selling at that toilet cleaner and frying oil, <laughs> oh, uh, which amazing. is something else that nobody really knows because I don't very I don't share it unless, of course, I'm on a podcast, clearly. Uh, so <laughs> I was saying that in in a region of the UK called Yorkshire. And I always say that if you can sell toilet cleaner in Yorkshire, where they're very careful with their money, you can sell anything. So sales became my career. I then actually moved into an American corporate PepsiCo and worked on the Frito-Lay side of PepsiCo in the UK. That was a, a different brand back then. Mm -hmm. Then I dabbled with my own business. It, and this was the millennium, the turn of the century during the dot-com boom and bust. But unfortunately, I started my business just when the bubble burst. <laughs> so it was an epic fail. But but I learned a lot from it, of course. And then what do you do then? Well, I became a consultant, of course. So that's when I became uh, did much of what I do now as well. But that's when I started. And one thing that I did in being a consultant was not going to strategic consultancy. It was more operational than that because my experience was on the ground, but also I had leadership experience too. And I knew the importance of implementation and embedding things and embedding change when you're doing it. So being an operational consultant put me, if you like, on the front lines again, but in a way where I could help others achieve what they needed to achieve. So I've done that really ever since and left the corporate version of that in 2018 and started my own business where I could really laser guide my expertise, which is all about transforming businesses and leadership for the modern workplace. And that's my niche. So that's digital leadership. It's human-centered leadership. It's workforce leadership with all the shifting that's going and hybrid leadership. Of course, we know that's coming right now. So that's where I am right now. And that's what drives my passion to do not just the job for my clients, but a lot of research that allows me to a, advise them differently, but more importantly, keep my product services, training, coaching, bang up to date at a time where speed is competitive advantage and change is a constant. And it's, there's one thing in my industry that, that I do have a big complaint about is that we do too much recycling of old learning. We repackage it for the next generation but you know nowadays we need we need the best of for sure but we need something different and that's where my passion lies finding that difference i love that um so let's dive into some of that right so the workplace as we all know is changing uh, dramatically and rapidly whether we like it or not uh right based on on uh, the pandemic, which in turn led to the great resignation and or the big quit, however you want to call it, whichever uh, side of the, the ocean you're on. Tell me about your perspective of where the trends were going before the pandemic and then what has happened since. Yes, in fact, I, let me come to the last point first. What's happened since is acceleration. That's what's happened since things have speeded up. So changes that were already in place have just speeded up. 
So those that thought remote working and hybrid working was something brand new because of the pandemic are wrong. Actually, this is part of transformation of the last sort of 10 to 15 years. So one of the pieces where I do a lot of research is the so-called digital transformation. And that has been going since the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And it's been on the agendas of corporates, of gurus, of experts for years and years and years. And as we came into 2020, that was becoming already a pinch point for many organizations that hadn't made that progress. And you had, you, you had two camps. You had the 20th century camp. This is the businesses that had 20th century business models, 20th century leaders who were thinking in 20th century ways. And then you had the 21st century leaders who were starting to think differently. They were taking the best of what they knew, but they were evolving themselves, their organizations, et cetera. And one of the problems was with digital transformation is that many leaders who had that 20th century lens were focused very much on the digital word. So the technology, the systems, the platforms, without realizing actually digital transformation doesn't exist. It's whole business transformation, which is the real key. You can't do digital without the human. And the human touch right now is more, more important than it ever was. Mm. So we were coming up really to a tipping point for many organizations. And in fact, McKinsey had predicted coming into 2020 that by 2024, up to 80% of senior management with, will fail within the next four years. That's because... Mm the speed of transformation wasn't quick enough and speed being competitive advantage would lead to failure. As we've seen with Toys R Us, with Kodak, with Blockbusters, you know, we've seen it all along, right? So what then started to shift though, was the realization first, when the pandemic hit of this sort of accelerated need to incorporate digital into our business. So digitize our processes, systems, way we did things. And that's around, in its simplest way, it was remote working. But in its, in its fuller way, it was actually the fast tracking of the transformation of the business and considering new ways of working. So that was one component that played into that. And that accelerated, of course, it, it called a lot of people out. But it also, interestingly, it, it showed, provided or forced upon some organizations, the possibilities rather than the challenges when they started to see what was happening. So luxury industry is a great example, who prided themselves on the in-store experience. If you went into a luxury store, I don't know, the Gucci, you take your pick, you know, <laughs> Gucci store. You went in, it was the experience was part of it. It was very personalized. Uh, it was all part of what the customer went through from thinking about what they might want through to the browsing, through to the accompaniment, through to the choices and the, the ultimate experience that they get. But if you Google Gucci Live, for example, you'll see what Gucci have done, they've, how they've pivoted to the remote world and they made it almost even better for their customers by doing it online, private showings with a number of Gucci professionals online with their potential customer. They've also brought special guests in when they've had a real high spender online. So from another continent, a celebrity who's popped on, who happens to be wearing what the customer or the prospect is looking at. And it's made a whole host of difference. 
so that's e even for those elements, it's the it's the possibilities that have come through, not just the challenges. And then, of course, what it is also highlighted is the change that was already in place with the workforce. And that potentially is the bigger change that we're not talking enough about, Mel. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, you know, I'm very passionate about the idea of getting out of our industrial models of both education and workforce and thinking about organizations I, you know i have a deep belief that in, that organizations are innately human and that what happens around organizational culture and meaning around work and people's engagement based on their intrinsic motivation motivators and happiness is is something that we have I, I would say a pendulum swing of paid attention to, right? There, there are periods of time where, where we got real, uh, a lot of, at least a lot of lip service to those ideas. And then there's a lot of times where, uh, you know, the economy was so good and you could find workers anywhere and you could, and companies started to just really take their humans for granted. And I'm wondering about your perspective on how that plays into all of these transformational needs and how organizations are able or unable or how are they challenged to to do all of these kind of practical transformations that have to happen in terms of policies and and flexibility and all that but also the human side how do we how do we get the intrinsic motivators back for for our workforce it's a really good question and what we've got to understand first though is that the work, workforce is changing as well mm -hmm. so that's what's often been missed and where the engagement mobilization motivation has fallen down because there has been a misreading of what's happening in the workforce yeah. so already we started to see of course the rise of the gig economy particularly over the last sort of 10 years uh, that has grown and grown and contributing to the economies of major countries uh, people sort of voting with their feet out of the corporate environments figuring that they could do things either better or differently themselves, or even have two or three jobs at once and do things in their way, be digital nomads, be based somewhere else, geography free, all of these wonderful things that we, we're starting to see more and more. The other thing then that has happened is that you've got organizations that started to use more and more independent contractors and stakeholders alongside their permanent workforce, which is driving at the same time a big trend of not just hybrid working, but the blended workforce itself. And we don't have an HR framework that copes with that. So let me give you an example. So if your workforce is 50% independent workers and 50% permanent employees so how do you do it? how do you motivate not just the permanent employees which we started talking about here but how do you actually motivate engage mobilize all of your workforce potentially the independent workers who are adding a lot of value who you want to be loyal with you but we don't have any policies and procedures because they're called managed services so i feel that we need a new a new framework full stop and it's something i call gig hr which recognizes almost a manifesto for change in how we look at the workforce. The other interesting thing about that is, is that the power base has shifted between the organization and the employees. It was once we would go to an interview and the power was with the organization. You really, this will look great on your CV if you join us. Right now, the power is with the employees because of like you say, the big quit or the great resignation, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
there's that going on, but there's also the, the natural move towards uh, more independent work, the trend that was happening anyway. So actually, what do we what do we do when we're thinking about this whole blend and we're trying to bring in independence at the same time as as keep our permanent employees? So the power is really with the employee to, to choose right now. And they're looking at how the companies treated their employees through the pandemic, for example, what their policies are around equity, diversity and inclusion. Uh, what their sustainability potentials are, what they do in communities, how they are becoming more purpose-driven. This is what's this is what's on the agendas for many Gen Z and millennials right now. It's not like when I went uh, for a job where it was it was it was really much more traditional about you know I've got to get in there, I've got to be promoted, and I've got to have these good names on my CV. It's no longer the case. So organisations have to change and adapt. They have they need a new framework but they need a new engagement model, which recognizes their workforce shift, not just ways of working. Yeah, yeah, I could not agree more. It, it is such an interesting time when you are, uh, you know, when you're studying these, these workforce trends and then you have so many competing interests happening. You know, we have, uh, you know, getting comfortable and different. So I do a lot of work with nonprofits, right? And in general, um, love them, but they tend to be a little bit less innovative uh, than uh, than some other businesses or some private sector businesses. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with their board and their board tends to have, you know, even what I found is even really innovative um people who come out of the business world who have innovations in their business world, they put on their nonprofit board member hat and somehow they, uh, you know, they revert back to some of these very traditional ideas and they don't allow their organization to, to flourish in that way. How does something like a nonprofit that we're, that's working in a little bit of less sophistication, a little bit less flexibility, um, they're also having issues. I, I'm working with one nonprofit right now. They have 14 openings um, and they're doing their best to pay them what they can and to offer, you know, perks and benefits to get people's attention. but. They're just, you know, they're desperate for for workers and workers who want to stay and be engaged. And so, uh, you know, how do they compete in a market as rapidly changing as this? That's a really interesting question. And it's going to get tougher, you know, for nonprofits mm -hmm. as well. It, it was interesting as you were talking there. I remember yesterday I was reading the paper and uh, it goes to the point that I was talking about before. A company in Germany is recruiting and the first time I've ever seen this, they're incentivizing for it. And this is a corporate, this is a corporate mm -hmm. uh, entity. Say so for your first interview, if you come for a first interview, we're going to give you 500 euros. If you make it to the second round, we're going to give you a thousand euros. If we take you and you complete your six month probation, we're going to give you 5,000 euros bonus. So that's the challenge that corporates are having. having. So imagine nonprofits and other organizations that are really struggling to get this talent when when the bigger organizations like this are having to do something like that right. to pay money to just get somebody to interview. Right. It's not a level playing field anymore, right? No, not at all. Not at all. And uh, for nonprofits, there is, there are a few things that are happening here in Asia. And I'm, I happen to be a non-exec director on a nonprofit and uh, but but not one of those 20th century thinking ones like you were saying <laughs> before. before. Um, 
yeah because uh because of course a lot that they, they, they still need to transform as well exactly as you said mel you know they really need to transform themselves as well so what i'm seeing in there is is that the way that some of the smarter non uh, uh non-profit organizations are attracting they're talking about can we have sort of six to nine to 12 months pro bono work with you mm-hmm. on top of your day job, what you do. Mm-hmm. So then we make openings. So this is at board level, but it's also operational level. So they're looking at sort of interim rather than full time time because they need they need people in place. So what they're saying is, is that we can we like it mainly pro bono, but we'll give a contribution to your time, et cetera, et cetera. So they can't pay the salaries. Right. that major corporates are, are paying right. but they're doing two things first of all they're recognizing in time but secondly they're also using that that great movement at the moment which is saying that we as organizations and leaders and managers need to be forces for good greater good than just the bottom line and profit and we need to start contributing to communities to society to the planet do all of these things because we've all got a part to play so they're playing to that too. And while, you know, proportionately there'll be people and managers and leaders that won't want to go down that route, there are a lot of people like myself who say, you know what? Yes, I'm willing to do that for 12 months or for six months or whatever. So there's plenty of creative opportunities there for nonprofits to, to drive into that and manage the, the, what, they, what they're able to offer as a remuneration even a minimal one as recognition with actually something like giving back and giving people the opportunity to work in an organization like that that is at the front lines of giving back i love that how how um successful is that it's early days i don't have any I must say, I don't have any data to say how successful it's been other than the qualitative elements of what certainly the organization I'm, I'm working with, how they're really appreciating the different points of view coming in, how uh, those of us coming in on a pro bono point of view are really getting a lot out of it because A, we're learning again. We're learning about, I mean, for me, it's, it's learning about a completely different sector mm-hmm. that I didn't know about, which, is, which has been great, but also allowing me to be involved as well, not just in the running or the the advisory capacity, but also in actually the things that they're doing. So the the qualitative feedback that seems to be coming out there that it's it's a mutually beneficial relationship, but you've got to have the right people in place. Right. So there is still that recruitment that has to be in there and there still has to be the clear expectations from both sides, but it really can work for both parties really well. That's fascinating. That's such an interesting model. Have you seen in your work some other kind of not talked about some interesting models of just how people are adapting and dealing? Are there other examples of in any industry really um, about just, you know, innovative things that were not that are not the norm and that we haven't talked about? Well, it's worth saying, first of all, that many organizational business models are shifting right now yeah so the whole model of how we work is is being shifted and there are organizations that are working differently sort of related to what we've talked about but more about this elements of an organization and leadership who are forces for good yes we want to make profit but we need the credentials in place that that allow us to do business differently and challenge the current the current definition of capitalism right 
and you know you know i mean the the, the us is is if you like the top of the pyramid of of capitalism and how that drives the money machine, the profit machine, the shareholder machine, all of those kind of things. And it takes a lot to kind of chip away at that. But there is an organization here in the UK. Uh, a, it's an organization, but also a body. So the, the, the organization is called Cotswold Fair. The CEO is called uh, Paul Hargreaves. And he has written a book called Forces for Good, actually, that challenges leaders to think and do differently these days. Now, what they have accessed is, is becoming a certified B Corp, certified B Corporation, mm -hmm. uh, which not only supports that move to be a much more society, community-minded organization, but looks at the process from every single part of the business, how you source things, uh, how you recruit employees, how you treat employees, how you treat communities where you operate, to then sign you off and certify you as a B Corporation, one of these organizations that, that are forces for good. So you've got that happening, if you like, in the traditional organizational space. Mm -hmm. But it also comes back to the fact that what you've also got happening is that you've got a huge movement of Generation X, which is my generation, taking one look internally at their, at their leadership and the next steps of their organization saying, you know what, I'm not going to be the one that solves this big problem. Mm -hmm. of of not transforming so there's it it's not just the independent workers who are millennials and generation z a hugely growing and the fastest growing population is generation x smart people who are moving leaving the corporate world to become digital nomads or even traditional workers but sort of hiring themselves out and almost moonlighting in two or three different organizations to offer services or, or interim role posts. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest shifts that's happening at the moment. And it's really dangerous for organizations. They're not there. A, many organizations are not seeing the shift to the blended workforce, as I talked about before, but they're all not. They're also not seeing the, the brain drain, if you like, the the loss of experience of experience generation um, Xs, the if you like, so-called in inverted commas leaders in waiting mm -hmm. who are just actually walking out of the door and they've got big problems coming because if they haven't transformed, who's going to do it for them? Right. What do you think about that trend of, of interim? Do you think that if an organization do you think it's a viable strategy for organizations if they shift their mindset to embrace it? That it could work um i obviously it works for those sort of freelancers who are out you know the, the gen x's who are leaving and, and going to do interim and fractional work and i'm a big uh kind of proponent and part of my business actually is fractional and, and interim work um but what do you do you think that it's a viable strategy for an organization to to have that if they are able to internally shift to accept it the the response i would give is it depends Okay, that's fair. Which is a real cop out, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so let me explain. Okay. Let's it depends. talk about the pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, it sort of depends on the state of their organizational transformation right now. If they're struggling with transformation, they're going to struggle with the mindset shift that is required for something like that to happen. Sure. So that's just one on a long list of many things they're not going to get to. But where this is working really well, this interim work, are actually with founders and startups and entrepreneurs who, uh, and this is across the world as well, uh, and particularly because I do a lot of work in Asia, I'm seeing this happen a lot in Asia, is that startups, as they're moving to their second phase of growth, they might not have the money 
to be able to hire some of these, these big hitters who have left the corporate world. And those big hitters equally who have left the corporate world can't expect the salaries that they, that they can go with. But what they can do is that they can come to an arrangement that says, we need you for six months or we need you for three months. So the lens shift or the mentality shift is not just about, you know, who do we recruit? It's also about what are the timelines here? It's, it's we're, we're no longer looking at careers for life. We're looking at, we're looking at interim periods for many um, experts here, but it's a great way of securing fantastic expertise, great experienced leaders or salespeople or marketing gurus who can come in and actually shake things up and transform it and then leave in six months again, having done that. Mm -hmm. It's achievable from a financial point of view, but it's also great as both sides buy into it as well. And that, that's something that needs to be mined further, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really passionate about this idea of bringing in fresh eyes and fresh talent. And it doesn't mean for whatever the period, six months, eight months, you know, a year, but that, that it doesn't mean they need to be a permanent employee or locked in forever. And, mm -hmm. and it's a different mindset for both the employee and the organization to, to embrace that relationship. And I have the blessing of being able to do that. And with a couple of in the, you know, like I said, in the nonprofit space, I have a couple of different clients where I'm able to come, where I've been able to go in and say, this is a level of expertise and talent that you, that your, you know, your FTE salary is not going to pay, but I can do all of this for this limited period of time and give you all these tools and train your staff and do all these things. And then sort of like push you out of the nest to, to hopefully, you know, move forward. And, and hopefully, you know, my objective is to, is to move them more than just one click, right? Like they would have moved one click on their own. I want to move them 10 clicks and then hopefully give them tools to move a little bit faster than they could have before. And I, I think that it's powerful and I wish more organizations would understand the value of it. But there's a lot of territorialism around that, right? Like there's some ego around, you know, someone coming in and how is it differ from the consulting world and hiring a consultant to come in? Yeah, you have the same challenges as a consultant often. It's uh, the same questions, you know, why are we paying this person to come in and tell us what we already know? Right. Blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's, but, but it's like, it's like so much in transforma transformational speech. It's mindset first and it's that shift that counts. And what, what I find is actually that that mindset shift is far quicker at small, medium enterprises and founders and startups than it is at the major corporate end. Those are the slow moving tankers, which take, you know, so much time to turn and see things differently because you've got so much more legacy politics that you're playing there. Yeah. So when you're when and the problem is, is when politics comes up against speed and speed of change and speed of shift and speed speed of need then the problem is is that you start to get you start to get barriers of entry you start to get roadblocks in place you start to get challenges and you start to get even more politics sort of brewing up and then if you try and transplant something somebody in the middle of that who's going to miraculously wave a magic wand and then leave again it will either exacerb exacerbate the situation mm -hmm. um, or it will help them through it somehow Right. But people have to be on board with it. So there's actually a job to be done first before any of these sort of interims come in that explains it to people and says, look, this is the purpose here. This is why we're doing it. This is what the purpose is. And it's a resource for us to use and for you to use. Right. And it's all about helping us just get to the next stage 
and then we'll take it forward from there. And often that is the step that is missed out, that implementation step about bringing everybody along with that decision. Sometimes it's just a decision at leadership level and then it gets thrown in and that's where the problems start because people say, well, what, what are they doing here? What, 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 why? Right, absolutely. So let's go back to a little bit of the, I think you mentioned four, if I'm not mistaken, different areas of transformation that you have really focused on and walk us through what what are, what those mean get you know help us give us the kindergarten lesson on these different elements and kind of what they mean in in a practical sense yeah. wow that's a sixty four thousand dollar question isn't it <laughs> so the uh, okay mel uh here we go softball so, softball for you yeah so the first one is is digital transformation and you could almost you could almost actually replace the word transformation with leadership in all of these as well because ultimately mm-hmm. It needs to be led through the organization, but digital transformation is enabling the organization to work smarter, better, collaborate more, communicate in different ways through enabling the organization with appropriate technologies. It's not about changing systems and platforms to to just upgrade what we currently have. It's actually to build an ecosystem that binds together our people, our customers, our organization so that we move forward together in the same way, in, in a way that our organization is aligned, recognizing that we have significant issues in the, in, the, um, current, in the current world that we live in when we're talking digital as well that people need to get on board with. That's cybersecurity, which will cost the world almost $10 trillion by 2025 you know that puts them in the top eight economies in the world cyber risk is in the top eight economies of the world so that's digital transformation not just about transforming the organization based on a piece of technology it's actually how we work smarter and better how we understand the digital work and embrace digital ways of working so agile data-driven decision making um, predictive and prescriptive analytics so that it helps us speed up our decision making so employing things like artificial intelligence, AI, to help us go through the vast reams of data that many organizations have, but still do with an Excel spreadsheet, you know, crazily as it, as it yes. is. So it's actually this whole approach, which is why I called it whole business transformation before, because you've got the leaders that need to do it. You've got to bring the rest of the organization together and shift the culture alongside it. But you've also got to think about what are the most important new and efficient ways of working as we move forward particularly if we also are going to practice hybrid or distributed working and our workforce is going to be dispersed away from our centers if we have centers anymore so it's that whole thing that's the first Mm -hmm. the second is the human-centered transformation Mm -hmm. uh, and that human-centered leadership transformation the need for leaders to demonstrate more human-centered skills like empathy, empowering their employees more. Because if you think about what I said first about the digital transformation, one CEO is not enough. You simply can't do all about this, particularly if the CEOs themselves have not been on an unlearning journey as much as a relearning journey. To think about what are the what are the things that we need to unlearn that we used to do that aren't going to help us moving forward? What are the bits we can take forward? But what are the new knowledge, skills, and behaviors that I need to adopt 
so that I upskill myself in, in the digital world, but also I'm able to bring others with me, particularly if it's a, a distributed workforce. How am I going to do that? How do I lead? How do I manage in that? But what's come out of the pandemic, of course, is the very best leaders have started to demonstrate much more of these human traits. These are so-called soft skills, Mel, and I hate that terminology. It's not soft skills. These are the power skills that leaders and managers and, and we all need in business because it's what makes business tick. It's that human engine that, that makes it forward. It helps us transcend politics and it helps bring leaders much closer to the people. So the human centered leadership is, yes, having your eye to the sky, but it's having your feet firmly on the ground. That's the second one. The third one, obviously, is workforce transformation. And we've talked a lot about that already. The rise of the blended workforce. So independence and permanence working together. Hybrid working, which is the mix of being able to work in your corporate offices and um, working remotely. And full distributed work, which is the, almost the next step from that, which is actually we're going to be like WordPress, for example. We don't have any offices. We're just going to work like that. That's the third. And therefore, the, four, the fourth part of that brings all of that together in, in the new hybrid modern workplace that we're, that we're living in. And then how do you bring all of those components together to make, make that work from a human people point of view, from an organizational point of view, from a digital point of view, from a workforce point of view, from a customer point of view as well, because ultimately that's what's going to drive your success. Right. Absolutely. So, so who are the people doing it well? Who are the companies or the organizations or the leaders that are actually at least the best we can merging those four or those three elements together, bringing it all together? That's an interesting question. And it links to research that we did over the last couple of years that looked at the state of digital transformation, if you like, or transforming for the modern era, I think is probably the best terminology for it. And what we found was quite interesting is that, the, is that North America and Europe, for example, were not as progressive as we're led to believe uh, when you start sure. the, uh, looking at the media. And in fact, the biggest, the biggest accelerations and successes we're having in Asia Pacific. So we did a bit of research on that. And one of the best companies that, that demonstrates everything that we're talking about there that brings together the digital component with the leadership component, with the workforce and culture components and, and different ways of working with customers is a bank, actually it's called DBS. Uh, it's a Singaporean based head office based bank, huge bank uh, operating right across Southeast Asia. And their CEO, Piyush Gupta, who is not just the organization that's doing well, it's the leader that really drove this. Now, Piyush Gupta, held hands up say you know we don't know this we don't know this brave new world what does banking look like in the next 10 years we don't know but we can find out and we can innovate now and we know that we need to go on a journey to scare the living daylights out of our leadership team including myself uh I, I, not me i mean Piyush Kupsa, right, he was right. saying that yeah. And the organization. So they did a series of hackathons for their senior leadership and management team to demonstrate a some of the challenges, but also some of the possibilities, but a lot of the knowledge gaps that were there. And it is one of the best examples of full whole business transformation that has come out of the last 10 years. And it's been featured in Harvard Business, Harvard business Review, actually, from it. But when you ask Piyush, what's the difference here? He said, well, 
you know, first of all, it's a culture change. It's an it's a huge culture shift. You've you've really got to understand that people have to come along with the journey. It's not just our people internally, it's our customers as well. So you have to involve them in the journey itself. And he said, you know, what the thing that changed everything for us was to come up with a more appropriate vision or strategy for the digital era. And, and the banks was making banking joyful. And that was, that doesn't sound digital, does it? Um, but what he said is, it's to make banking joyful. What we realized when we talked about our customers, what, what they said, he said, well, we want you not to be there. It's like, we don't want you, we want you invisible. We don't wake up in the morning and, and decide, right, I'm going to call my bank and get a mortgage, or I'm going to do this. We want my, the bank to be there when I need them, but I don't want them to be pushing things on me. So the whole thing about joyful banking then drove this making the banking invisible. So what are the technologies that they could put in place that made a real difference for the customer experience out there and took the customers on a whole journey? So transcended customer experience and went into customer journeys. So accompanied them with every need, every moment of need that they might have. So it was hard, it was tough, but they did it. It's been one of the best digital transformations, whole business transformations out there. It's impacted their bottom line hugely. It drove double digit growth almost overnight. But what it also did, and this we touched on this before, it released the potential within their organization that traditionally they didn't realize it was there. And it was, a, you know, it's an Asian organization. It was beforehand quite hierarchical in terms of how it worked. What they embraced was experimentation at all levels. So they put in place a culture that allowed people to step out of their role and have an idea and lead things forward and lead them to their conclusion. So everybody felt involved and engaged in the journey. And you asked the question before about, you know, in this in this time where we're really having trouble with hiring good employees and keeping good employees because of the great resignation. You know, what are the great examples of that? This is a fantastic example of how one organization which was quite traditional, has kept its employees, is attracting new employees and not having this kind of problem or communication. And another one, actually, um, another one from Europe is uh, Spotify. Mm -hmm. And they practice the same. It's so much about empowering people and, and allowing people to be part of the challenges that they have, the opportunities that they think they have to innovate at any level and to move forward. So if you have Spotify, something like your Discover Weekly or your Daily Drive, that's not, that's not innovated by marketing. That's been doing in their hack weeks where they've brought employees from all around the world and it's come from the ground up. It's absolutely fantastic. And I, I was talking to the head of talent for Spotify and she, uh, uh, Johanna, Bolin Tingval, and she was she was telling me, she was telling me these are really messy affairs. We've got all of this kind of, you know, we've got so such great people in Spotify, and they all want to generate ideas. And she said, but it's in the chaos that the magic happens, and that's where a lot of their innovations come from. So they build again from the ground up there, and they flatten their leadership structure and transfer. Even even though it's a, you could argue it's a new tech based biz they're still having to transform. They're still challenged by the speed of transformation and what they're doing. And they, that what they've realized is of course, people is at the heart of it, but you've got to have the enlightened leaders at the same time, like, like Daniel Ek in Spotify, but also like Piyush Gupta at DBS. Sure, sure. Oh, I love that. 
Um, so we're starting to get to the end of the end of the hour, and I want I have two final questions for you. And the first is if you could just sit on a podium and give your best advice to leaders who are trying to navigate through these murky waters. Um, you know, what are your top pieces of advice that you would that you would give to leaders in this time? Sometimes what leaders should do more of is get outside of their comfort zone. So not being afraid to fail is, I mean, it's, it's advice, but it's hard to do, right? So right, absolutely. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> easier said than done for sure. It is, but so being willing, but being, being willing to experiment as a leader mm-hmm. and being willing, willing to hold your hand up and say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. So it's experimentation. I don't have all the answers. Also acknowledging that I need to go on a learning journey as a leader. What do I need to unlearn? What do I need to relearn? And what are the new skills that I need to, to build so that my capability is most appropriate for the decade ahead? Not today, but for tomorrow, because the speed of change is so much. Right. I think those three things are probably the most important things that enlightened leaders who are making the most rapid progress are doing. I love it. I love that so much. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, tell us an early work memory that made you passionate about the workplace and about the work that you do. Um, <laughs> maybe your first work experience, maybe just something that that sort of said, I know I have this, I mean, we talked about your rich uh, experience history, but what was it that kind of made you so passionate about helping the workplace and informing and growing leaders? Um, it was at the cusp of my role changes because I my career started in sales and it was sales, marketing, category management. But I always believed as a manager, just as a manager of my team in results through people. So it was I was always coaching led. I always tried to empower empower my people as uh in whatever role it was but it's when i started getting involved in the more formalized part of that so the training that organizations did as as a manager that i realized that sales and marketing yeah all very well i could do them but this was my real passion that i'd missed completely at the very beginning i didn't even know what i didn't know And it was only when I stood up in front of a class for the first time and saw that the first of all, that I could communicate the concepts. Secondly, that I could help people work through not just to embed the knowledge, but to practice the skill and provide the feedback that they needed. And then thirdly, when they left the room for people to come to me and say, that has made a huge difference to me. And this is what I'm going to do differently. It was like, that was a, a huge wow moment for me. And it changed everything. Oh, I love that so much. Well, this has been such a pleasure. I could talk to you for hours. Um, you share the same passion as I do around the workforce and around these transformations and, and just wanting organizations to create environments that are positive and future thinking. And I just love that so much. So thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed having you. Thank you very much for having me, Mel, and good luck with the rest of these. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by hitting subscribe or providing a rating or review. And as always, how can we help you answer the question, what are you in pursuit of? Find out more at www.inpursuitresearch.org.